It's time now for the complete story, a public news and information feature of Bot Radio Network to keep you informed about the most important issues of our day. Now, here's the BRN father and son team, Dick and Rich Bot, with today's complete story. My word, Rich, here it is. Here it is. Uh, we always know it as the 4th of July, but it really is Independence Day, isn't it? And there's a difference between those two designations. Well, Independence Day is always the 4th of July. Yeah. We'll have to do some research and find out exactly how that was designated to be that way. Well, but it commemorates the signing of I the Declaration what, of Independence. Since, ever since I was a child, you always think the 4th of July means what? You know, it means Cracker Jacks and or, um, firecrackers. Or firecrackers. There you go. Things of that sort. But the people, I think now, now more than ever before that I can remember, people need to think about what it is we celebrate at this time of year. Here is John Wayne. Now, isn't that something? He's been gone a long time. But John Wayne, um, he did a recording of Why I Love America. Why I Love America. Why I Love America. And I just love it. I want our listeners to hear it now. You ask me why I love it? Don't give me time. I'll explain. Have you seen a Kansas sunset or an Arizona rain? Have you drifted on a bayou down Louisiana way? Have you watched the cold fog drifting over San Francisco Bay? Have you heard a Bob White calling in the Carolina Pines? Or heard the bellow of a diesel in the Appalachia Mines? Does the call of the Niagara thrill you when you hear her waters roar, you look with awe and wonder at her Massachusetts shore where men who braved a hard new world first stepped on Plymouth Rock. Do you think of them when you stroll along a New York City dock? Have you seen a snowflake drifting in the Rockies way up high? Have you seen the sun come blazing down from a bright Nevada sky? You hail to the Columbia as you rush into the sea, or how you're headed Gettysburg, our struggle to be free. Have you seen the mighty Tetons, you watched an eagle soar? Have you seen the Mississippi roll along Missouri's shore? Have you felt a chill at Michigan when on a winter's day her waters rage along the shore in thunderous display? Does the word aloha make you warm? You stare in disbelief when you see the surf come roaring in at Waimea Reef. From Alaska's cold to the Everglades, from the Rio Grande to Maine, my heart cries out, my pulse runs fast, the might of her domain. You ask me why I love her? I have a million reasons why. My beautiful America, beneath God's wide, wide sky. Beautiful, 
what a beautiful time it is to really think about that song and what it means. I, uh, people know that I was born and raised in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and then went out to the West Coast uh, 67 years ago. And then from the West Coast, of course, in business, well, then you go to New York and the East Coast, and then to Texas and South, and then way up North again. And that's America. That's the America. And when I was listening to the words of that song, I was thinking how blessed we are to have the United States of America and the government that our Constitution um, was put together to provide for us. And this time of the year that we celebrate Independence Day, yeah. the beginning of America. It really is. Now, on that score, I have been looking through our archives again, and Paul Harvey, his his wisdom and the things he talked about are so good because he tells us now, if you listen exactly, what people did, what people did in order to secure the freedom that we enjoy in America today. Here it is. Americans, the how and the why of our beloved republic are so much better known and understood than the who. The United States of America was born in 1776, but it was conceived 169 years before that. The earliest settlers had watered the new world with much sweat. They had built substantial holdings for themselves, for their families. And when the time came to separate themselves from a tyranny an ocean away, at best, it meant starting all over again after the ravages of war. Researching what you're about to hear gave a whole new dimension to my reverence for our nation's first citizens. All others of the world's revolutions, before and since, were initiated by men who had nothing to lose. Nothing to lose. Our founders had everything to lose and nothing to gain, except one thing. Hello, Americans. I'm Paul Harvey. You remember the cherry tree fiction. A long time after you have forgotten the more earth-shaking history-making episodes in the life of George Washington, you have misplaced in your memory the details of Ben Franklin's statesmanship, but you remember his flying a kite. Joyce Kilmer was a great military hero. But the only thing you personally recall about him is his poetic tribute to trees. Maybe of this current decade, that which will be remembered best will not be its wars and its moon rockets or its crumbling frontiers or the giants who lived and died. Maybe all that will survive to linger in the day-by-day -day vocabulary of generations yet unborn may be the, the songs of a Memphis minstrel or the reincarnation of electric automobiles. But for any eve of the 4th of July, I, Paul Harvey, do herewith bequeath unto you something to remember. You may not be able to quote one line from the Declaration of Independence at this moment. Henceforth, you'll always be able to quote at least one line. It's in the last paragraph where you will recall when I remind you, it says, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. In the Pennsylvania State House that's now called Independence Hall in Philadelphia, the best men from each of the colonies sat down together. This was a very fortunate hour in our nation's history, one of those rare occasions in the lives of men when we had greatness to spare. These were men of means, well-educated, 24 were lawyers and jurists, 
Nine were farmers, owners of large plantations. On June 11, a committee sat down to draw up a declaration of independence. We were going to tell the British fatherland no more rule by redcoats. Below the dam of ruthless foreign rule, the stream of freedom was running shallow and muddy. And we were going to light a fuse to dynamite that dam. This pact, as Burke later put it, was a partnership between the living and the dead and the yet unborn. There was no bigotry. There was no demagoguery in this group. All had shared hardships. Jefferson finished a draft of the document in 17 days. Congress adopted it in July, and so much is familiar history. But now, King George III had denounced all rebels in America as traitors. Punishment for treason was hanging. The names now so familiar to you from the several signatures on that Declaration of Independence, the names were kept secret for six months, for each knew the full meaning of that magnificent last paragraph in which his signature pledged his life, his fortune, and his sacred honor. Fifty-six men placed their names beneath that pledge. Fifty-six men knew when they signed that they were risking everything. They knew if they won this fight, the best they could expect would be years of hardship in a struggling nation. And if they lost, they'd face a hangman's rope. But they signed the pledge. And here is the documented fate of that gallant 56. Carter Braxton of Virginia, wealthy planter, trader, saw his ships swept from the seas. To pay his debts, he lost his home and all of his properties and died in rags. Thomas Lynch, Jr., who signed that pledge, was a third-generation rice grower, aristocrat, large plantation owner. After he signed, his health failed. His wife and he set out for France to regain his failing health. Their ship never got to France, was never heard from again. Thomas McKean of Delaware was so harassed by the enemy that he was forced to move his family five times in five months. He served in Congress without pay, his family in poverty and in hiding. Vandals looted the properties of Ellery and Clymer and Hall and Gwinnett and Walton and Hayward and Rutledge and Middleton. Thomas Nelson, Jr. of Virginia, raised $2 million on his own signature to provision our allies, the French fleet. After the war, he personally paid back the loans, wiped out his entire estate, and he was never reimbursed by his government. In the final battle for Yorktown, he, Nelson, urged General Washington to fire on his, Nelson's own home, which was occupied by Cornwallis. It was destroyed. Thomas Nelson, Jr. had pledged his life, his fortune, and his sacred honor. The Hessians seized the home of Francis Hopkinson of New Jersey. Francis Lewis had his home and everything destroyed, his wife imprisoned. She died within a few months. Richard Stockton, who signed that declaration, was captured, mistreated, his health broken to the extent that he died at 51, his estate was pillaged. Thomas Hayward, Jr. was captured when Charleston fell. John Hart was driven from his wife's bedside while she was dying. Their 13 children fled in all directions for their lives. His fields and grist mill were laid waste. For more than a year, he lived in forests and caves and returned home after the war to find his wife dead, his children gone, his properties gone, and he died a few weeks later of exhaustion and a broken heart. Lewis Morris saw his land destroyed, his family scattered. Philip Livingston died within a few months from the hardships of the war. 
John Hancock, history remembers best due to a quirk of fate rather than anything he stood for, that great sweeping signature attesting to his vanity towers over the others. One of the wealthiest men in New England. And yet he stood outside Boston one terrible night of the war. And he said, burn Boston, though it makes John Hancock a beggar if the public good requires it. So he too lived up to the pledge. Of the 56, few were long to survive. Five were captured by the British and tortured before they died. Twelve had their homes from Rhode Island to Charleston sacked, looted, occupied by the enemy or burned. Two lost their sons in the army. One had two sons captured. Nine of the 56 died in the war from its hardships or from its more merciful bullets. I don't know what impression you had had of the men who met that summer in Philadelphia. But I think it's important that we remember this about them. They were not poor men. They were not wild-eyed pirates. These were men of means. They were rich men, most of them, and had enjoyed much ease and luxury in their personal living. Not hungry men, certainly not terrorists, not irresponsible malcontents, not fanatical incendiaries. These men were prosperous men, wealthy landowners. They were substantially secure in their prosperity. They had everything to lose. But they considered liberty, and this is as much as I shall say of it. They learned that liberty is so much more important than security, that they pledged their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor. And they fulfilled their pledge. They paid the price. And freedom was born. You know, Rich, uh, as I was listening carefully to that, the recent debates, the recent Democrat Party rebates, and I'm not getting political, folks, but all I heard was, you elect me, and I'm going to give you this for nothing. You elect me, and I'm going to give you free this and free that and free the other. You elect me, and I'm going to make you happy uh, without working or uh, without being accountable for your time or your effort or anything else. And when you when you juxtaposition what we just heard against what we're hearing now coming up on election, um, it's stark, isn't it? I love that when he said that our founders realized that liberty is more precious than security. Yeah. Isn't that the truth? Folks, you know what that means? Freedom. 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 Individual freedom to pursue, to build, to grow, to create, and then hopefully to serve God. And to worship. To understand. Now listen, here's something by Johnny Cash. People should remember. I imagine the older ones will. Johnny Cash was a person. He was a very popular singer, and uh, but he had uh, troubles in his life. Uh, everything didn't work out. He, I think he probably got started when he was young, you know, um, drinking or doing something. So uh, his whole life was kind of a, a difficult experience. But, but what he stood for, he understood that America, America provided something that no other country did, that no other country did. And listen to what he said about that ragged old flag. I walked through a county courthouse square on a park bench, an old man was sitting there. 
I said, your old courthouse is kind of run down. He said, no, it'll do for our little town. I said, your old flagpole has leaned a little bit, and that's a ragged old flag you got hanging on it. He said, have a seat. And I sat down. Is this the first time you've been to our little town? I said, I think it is. He said, I don't like to brag, but we're kind of proud of that ragged old flag. You see, we got a little hole in that flag there when Washington took it across the Delaware. And it got powder burned the night that Francis Scott Key said, watching it right and say, can you see? And it got a bad rip in New Orleans with Packingham and Jackson tugging at its seams. And it almost fell at the Alamo beside the Texas flag, but she waved on, though. She got cut with a sword at Chancellorsville, and she got cut again at Shiloh Hill. There was Robert E. Lee, Beauregard, and Bragg, and the south wind blew hard on that ragged old flag. On Flanders Field in World War I, she got a big hole from a Bertha gun. She turned blood red in World War II. She hung limp and low a time or two. She was in Korea, Vietnam. She went where she was sent by her Uncle Sam. She waved from our ships upon the briny foam, and now they've about quit waving back here at home. In her own good land here, she's been abused. She's been burned, dishonored, denied, and refused. And the government for which she stands is scandalized throughout the land. And she's getting threadbare and she's wearing thin, but she's in good shape for the shape she's in. Cause she's been through the fire before. And I believe she can take a whole lot more. So we raise her up every morning. We take her down every night. We don't let her touch the ground and we fold her up right. On second thought, I do like to brag because I'm mighty proud of that ragged old flag. Rich, when I was listening to that, it reminded me it was just two or three days ago that I heard a news story from a businessman. I think he was in Texas. I'm not sure. But he loved that flag, and he was known to fly that flag high in the sky over his business. And um, and then the city council, they said, oh, you, it's too big. We, we we have an ordinance against that. You can't fly that flag. You've got to... It's a distraction. I remember that's one of the things they said. It's a distraction. And uh, and you've got to put it down because we have reg- rules and regulations uh, on that sort of thing. And he said, no, no, no. He said, I know I may even have to pay a price. But he said, I'm not going to take that flag down, nor am I going to diminish the size that it is flying on my property of the business I own. I think he said also that either he was from another country, um, a legal immigrant, by the way, not illegal, legal immigrant, or his parents were. And he said, coming to America, for either it was him or his parents, gave him freedom to build and to grow and to produce. So the flag really meant so 
very much to him. And that's what came to my mind when I was listening to Johnny Cash. Oh, yes. And what, what came to my mind is the recent decision by Nike Shoe Company to withdraw the particular kind of tennis shoe that they were coming out with, with the American flag on the back, <laughs> because they said that the American flag was offensive to certain people. <laughs> and Colin Kaepernick, uh-huh. you know, people that kneel uh-huh. instead of standing oh, you know. for the national anthem. And so they they pulled that particular shoe because it had an American flag on it, and it was an offense to some. Yeah. And that's just really offensive to me. Yeah. I'll tell you what would be offensive to some. I'm looking here at some of my things in my files. Uh, when President Abraham Lincoln said, but for the Bible, we could not even know right from wrong. All things most desirable for man's welfare are to be found portrayed in it. Isn't that something? Listen to what George Washington said. It is impossible to rightly govern without God and the Bible. Isn't that controversial today? Isn't that something? I want our folks, I want to end the program by letting our listening audience enjoy this by Sandy Patty. We've used it over and over again, Rich. It's the Star Spangled Banner, and no one, no one sings it like Andy and Grant. And this is powerful. And listen to the words, because she has some verses in there that we rarely hear, but oh, it's yeah. part of the national and anthem. I want you to listen to the way she sings it, because at the very end, at the very end, her voice just soars. Here it is, folks.
much. What is our listener comment line? 1-800-345-2621. 1-800-345-2621. Okay, we got to get out of here. This is Dick Bott and my son Rich with this chapter of The Complete Story as a public service. See you later. <laughs>